So we're going to be in uh, 2 Thessalonians. So we'll just jump in here. Uh, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians, and our God, our Father, and the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. As Paul has worked with this church, now he writes them uh, this letter, and he has a great deal to say uh, about doctrine and uh, their belief, but also uh, very practical issues regarding uh, their conduct. So there are a number of things uh, to learn from Thessalonians and uh, very particular things that we don't find elsewhere. So he starts in typical Pauline fashion, which is also, you know, cultural, the Greeks and the Jews that he's addressing, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those uh, twins of, um, you know, the, the New Testament, especially grace and peace. And it's always worth, you know, talking about the fact that we're not going to experience peace without God's grace. And uh, that, you know, is sort of omnidirectional. Uh, if we're not experiencing God's grace personally, then we're also not going to be uh, delivering God's grace. And, um, you know, then the reverse is true. So I say it's sort of omnidirectional. If, if you're not delivering God's grace with your life and your message and what you're sharing with people, then the question stands, have you received God's grace? Because if you've received God's grace, then you, you have a sense of that need because it's so central to the message. So you're not going to know peace without God's grace. Our culture, a number of people have been uh, you know, asking me questions regarding uh, where we stand as a country, and this may be shocking to you um, for me to say this, but uh, this country has fallen, and uh, a lot of people are, you know, patriotically hanging on to, we have a constitution, and we can, you know, continue to fight, and we have a voice, and we can vote, and all these different things, and, uh, you know, Absolutely, we need to be very diligent, very involved Christians, but it, it's over. I mean, you know, the, the, the passage of Scripture I've been encouraging people to read uh, since last week is um, Jeremiah chapter 29. And uh, Jeremiah has been telling uh, the people to give in to the Babylonians, and to not resist, not fight. And there are people that are, you know, saying that he's committing treason by doing that. And uh, he sends letters to the people who have been taken captive uh, and are now in Babylon. And he says to them, you know, build houses and have families and get married and raise your children because it's over. You're in captivity. Um, you know, people haven't figured it out. Um, your freedom's gone. Constitution is, uh, being, uh, destroyed. It's, this nation's over. The grand experiment that was the, you know, Republic of America is already done. Uh, you can be as patriotic as you want to individually. Um, 
you know, here's a huge earmark. If you if you're sitting there now going, that that can't be. I mean, how can this possibly be? Uh, have you noticed that freedom of speech is gone? I mean, what what could be more central to everything we're doing? Freedom of speech. I cannot even say what I want to say, what the Lord has told me to say. I mean, I'm going to say it, and they're going to get more and more stringent about it, and, you know, we'll follow the path of Canada, and we'll follow the path of, uh, you know, all the European countries, and we're done. It's it's been sacrificed up to the pleasures of the people. We've we've become corrupted from the inside. Um, I think that the next four years is going to just flip this nation right upside down, and I think that after that we're going to see a continuing cataclysmic deterioration of this nation. It's going to be unrecognizable. Ten years is going to be. So then everybody goes, oh, well, we shouldn't have kids. We shouldn't have families. We shouldn't, you know, hear what Jeremiah is saying. Jeremiah chapter 29. You know, most people know Jeremiah chapter 29, 11. You know, I know the thoughts I think towards you, thoughts of peace, not of evil, that you might have a future and a hope. Sure. He's saying that to people who are headed off into captivity and they're saying God has forsaken us or they're saying, you know, Jeremiah is a traitor or they're, they're saying any number, any number of things. From here, what we all want to experience is peace. Not going to know peace without the grace of God in your life. It doesn't matter if you're living in a nation that worships God or a nation that has forsaken God. You can personally know the grace of God and the peace of God in your own life, no matter how much turmoil comes. But I think it's really deceptive to say... Um, you know, we're going to get this straightened out. We're going to fix this. It's not going to get straightened out. It's not going to get fixed. The, the thing to do is understand where your nation is and then resolve your relationship with God. Because the persecution is going to come. And it's going to be big. And there isn't going to be any running away from it. Because then your choices are, do I run away from my faith? Or do I run, you know, so you have to stand your ground. You've got to become resolved in this. So verse 3, uh, to the church at Thessalonica, Paul says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and your love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Great fellowship, wonderful, loving people. Everybody knows about the church at Thessalonica. You know, the word has gotten out. These people are mature and growing and really are, are showing a lot of their outward expression of their faith. Within that, Paul's going to have to address some things that are disrupting the church. The conduct of certain people doesn't follow this pattern. And Paul has to, you know, put things in order for them. So that we ourselves boast of you, verse 4, among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. That's the endurance that they have. If, if, you know, if you're being persecuted 
and you're not standing up in that. That's not an evidence uh, of you know the righteousness and the judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. you know, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Remember that when you're suffering things. God will balance the scales. He will. And, uh, you know, our <clears throat> difficulty is uh, we tend to be prideful. We tend to be judgmental. And we want people, you know, dragged in front of us and made to grovel. And, uh, you know, if you take a humble approach to that, you quickly begin to recognize that you yourself are a sinner in need of God's grace, and you wouldn't want that to happen to you. So if God's going to correct someone and balance the scales, as I'm describing here, then it's up to him how he does it. He does it in their hearts and in their minds. So he's going to. He's going to take care of the people that trouble you. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Um, there are a few things regarding this judgment and the flaming fire and the vengeance that uh, the Lord describes here that are very important to understand. This everlasting destruction. Um, you know, many times uh, people who you know, usually only want to examine the Word of God in English, uh, will take passages such as this and combine it with worldly experiences that they have and then their own thoughts, emotions, and motivations, and they'll say that hell is not an eternal pain and sorrow or destruction. That, yes, hell exists, some of them say hell doesn't even exist, but some of them go as far as to say, yes, hell exists, but those that are sent there experience a destruction, and then that's the end of things. Uh, the Greek language is very specific. Everlasting destruction, several of the mentions here are describing an eternity of pain and destruction. It isn't you know, an earthly thing. You remember uh, in reading the book of Genesis that when Adam and Eve have fallen into sin and God pronounces his judgment upon them, one of the things he does is he expels them from the Garden of Eden and God makes the position at that point that the reason is if they were able to have access to the tree of life, then they could live forever in their sinful state. Well, uh, the problem is sin is destructive. You know, what we are experiencing for pain and deterioration is a result of sin. You know, 
disease and age and, you know, the slow decomposition of getting older is the result of sin. Think about living for eternity and continuing to experience that deterioration. You know, we think of living eternally as being like living and being useful and healthy for eternity. Okay, that's the presence of God. Being expelled from the presence of God is to have eternal life and be dying in the entire process. I, I can't imagine. You know, how, how would you go about describing that? You know, pain and sorrow and misery. You know, Scripture saying that, you know, the Lord will wipe away every tear. So uh, it isn't to say that we won't have sorrow, but he will comfort us in the process. Uh, we read, uh, you know, the prophet telling us that the former things, once we're in the presence of the Lord, the formal, former things will be remembered no more. Um, you know, it's possible that the memory of loved ones may fade. I find that very gracious. If if I have loved ones that are in hell for all of eternity, I would prefer to not think about them for all of eternity. That, that would be very unpleasant. It would be very difficult to, to go through that. You know, contrast a divine forgetfulness and the fact that you wouldn't have to go through that sorrow for eternity, and that's somewhat speculation, but contrast that with living for eternity and only being able to remember all of the occasions that you could have accepted the Lord and you rejected him, and the fact that people who preach to you are now in the presence of the Lord and you're separated from him for all eternity. This seems to be what the scripture is describing. Every you know, element of your person is experiencing the absence of God and the deterioration and destruction for all of eternity. You know, Revelation saying that the smoke of their torment will ascend forever. <clears throat> it's a false thing uh, to teach people that the Scripture says. You know, they, they insist, oh, it's you know, you're just going to be annihilated, and then that's the end of things. That's not what the scripture teaches. And if there is an eternity of deterioration, pain, and hell, as the scripture describes, then how evil would a person be to tell someone that doesn't exist? You, know, you, you need to be warned about the things to avoid so that you can make choices and stay away from them. You know, well, you know, some people say, well, that's a you know, form of extortion or blackmail. Or, no, I call it a divine invitation. Because we are destined for hell, every, every one of us, and we've been given an opportunity to escape that. It isn't the other way around, that we were promised heaven and somehow God has sent us to hell. It's a matter of every single one of us is a sinner, so the end result will be hell for us. And God has provided a way of escape, a way to be in his presence. So it's important to remember this short section from verse 3 to 10 and the very specific claim it makes about an eternal punishment and an eternal hell and an eternal fire that we uh, you know, would experience if we did not live in fellowship with God. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy 
of this calling and fulfill all uh, the good pleasure of his goodness in the work of faith with power that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you uh, and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the reminder that this work is in fact the work of the Lord, you know, found worthy. How are we ever found worthy? We're found worthy because of grace forgiveness, you know, Jesus Christ's righteousness. If we have accepted Jesus Christ's righteousness, that's what makes us worthy. If we have refused Jesus Christ's righteousness, then we are dead in our own sins. We are unredeemed. You just um, think about the people. I've heard two instances. Uh, one was just today, recently. Um, there was a lottery winner uh, a couple months back. Um, I don't know where the lottery was. If you look it up, I'm sure you'll find it very quickly. Uh, won hundreds of millions of dollars and did not realize it until the ticket had expired. Imagine the regret. You, you, you were for you know, nearly a month, a millionaire. And then when you find the ticket, there's no redeeming. There is an expiration date and end of discussion. You don't get to show up, you know, months later or years later and say, I have the winning ticket. You have to show up by the deadline. Tragic. <clears throat> Read an article today about a man who invested in uh, crypt coin, Bitcoin, uh, has some 7,200 some odd you know, shares of Bitcoin. And uh, they are all inside a hard drive that he put all of that information into more than 10 years ago when the purchase was made. And he has lost the password to that. And because it is a secure hard drive, the password is encrypted and it's impossible to recover the password from the hard drive. Impossible for anyone to recover the uh, password to the hard drive. He would literally have to remember it. Ten digits, they all have to be very random. Wrote it down, lost it, doesn't know where it is, can't remember it. Ten years ago. Hundreds of millions of dollars today. They've increased in value. Hundreds of millions of dollars. Gone. Eternity at your disposal. And you don't cash in. How foolish is that? That's, that's tragic. You know, Jesus Christ is offering. It's not based upon you. It's not based. It's based upon what he's done. That's gracious. That just, yeah, you, you, you don't have any ability to cash in on this value. I'll do it for you. I'll, I'll I'll become a man. I'll I'll die on the cross. You simply have to accept it. It's foolishness to the world. They hear it, right? I mean, we're we're reading our way through numbers, and there's the nation of Israel fallen into sin, and the snakes begin to bite them, and they're dying from the venom of the poison. And Moses is told to make the bronze serpent and put it on a pole and hold it above the encampment, and anyone that would look up to the snake would be healed. How foolish do you have to be 
to be dying from the, de- the venom of a deadly snake and say, I will not look at that serpent on a pole. And yet people do this. You know, well, how are we found worthy, right? Well, Jesus said, you know, this is the work of the Lord, that you would believe on him whom he sent. That, that You know, as far as the work you've got to do, it's trusting the one who can save you. That's all it is. It's so strange how insane the human race is. There's just tons of illustrations. I you know, worked as a lifeguard as a teenager, and they trained us extensively. More of our training had to do with avoiding being drowned yourself. Because when you go out to rescue somebody, Uh, they view you as a flotation device. And very often rescuers are drowned by their victims. Uh, The old thing we went through was reach, throw, row, then go. You know, you need to reach to them before you try anything else. Reach, throw something to them, a life vest, you know, a life ring. Row out to them or paddle out to them on a board or a boat. Do not get in the water. Go is your last option. You know, they, they, they will kill you in the process. How many people resist Jesus Christ with a ferocious battle? They're watching their lives be destroyed by drugs and alcohol and sin, adultery, and who knows what else, and, and watching everything fall apart. And they fight all the way and destroy themselves in the process. Jesus Christ, you know, the, the calling, you know, uh, Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of his calling. What is the worthiness? That's what I'm dwelling on. So all I'm trying to do with all these illustrations is the worthiness is just accept the gift. You know, if, if you have rejected the gift, then you have to bear the consequences in the process also. So in uh, chapter 2, uh, it says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So uh, we studied in First uh, Thessalonians, uh, or Second Thessalonians. Uh, no, it was First Thessalonians uh, when Paul is talking about the return of Jesus Christ for the church. Now he's giving them further explanation and understanding of that. They, they sort of know the physical aspects of Jesus Christ is going to come in the clouds and the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God, and then caught up into the air with him. But here, a little more specifically, uh, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering together to him, we ask not to be soon shaken. You ask you to not be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit, uh, you know, uh, internal thought or, or even, you know, demonic spirit that might come uh, to a person or by word. You know, anyone sharing with you, speaking to you, or by letter, have you received something written as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come, right? Uh, There are a lot of people within Christianity who preach this in two ways. There are those uh, we now uh, refer to as preterists. And uh, there's a couple different ways of um, defining the term. Um, it can mean like already occurred, or it can mean 
in the past or it can mean like already fulfilled. So however you want to look at it, uh, however you want to remember it, the preterists say specifically that the return of Jesus Christ occurred in 65 AD, that when Jerusalem was destroyed uh, by uh, the, the Romans, that that is where Jesus came. And, that's, and they go through great lengths to explain that that's everything Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and then everything that was said scattered through the apostles' writings, and then everything that was said in the book of Revelation that all occurred either before or on 65 A.D. when Rome destroyed Jerusalem. And uh, there's just so many problems with it; it's not funny. Um, you know, the the uh, I could spend several sermons going through all the details. I mean, you know, they they even go as far as uh, you know when the Lord said that you know He would appear in the clouds and that you know people would see Him in his coming, particularly referring to his second coming when he comes to earth and sets up his kingdom on this earth, not just the trip, the uh, rapture when he takes the church. Uh, they go through great uh, lengths to say that um, the armies of heaven were seen in the clouds above Jerusalem battling with the demonic forces and that you know there were these different records of history that that took place. Okay, uh, even if it did take place, there were many eyewitnesses to uh, the fall of Jerusalem who didn't mention anything about that. But even if that was something that people saw and it did took place, uh, there are so many other things that didn't happen and weren't part of the fulfillment that you have to ask, like, what are you talking about as far as, you know, Jesus Christ's kingdom? Where, where are we seeing that, right? Because... At his second coming, he's going to set up his kingdom and rule the earth. And then they get really wild and, well, his kingdom has been set up and we're living in it now. Yeah, it, it feels like sin has been abolished, doesn't it? You know, it feels like Christ is ruling and reigning over all the nations and making them subject to him, doesn't it? Or no, it doesn't. You know, so so here, um, I, I'll never forget it. When I, we started this fellowship uh, we were just a few months into it and uh, the Lord compelled me to teach the book of Revelation the first time through for a lot of the people in the congregation and uh, very first sermon in the book of Revelation a guest showed up never seen him there before and uh, he came up after the, the sermon and he had uh, a few questions and he you know I could tell he was a bit of a skeptic and he came week after week, and after he'd been there like three weeks, he, he said, you know, I'd really like to have dinner with you and your family. Why don't you come over to my house, and we'll, you know, uh, have lasagna or whatever. And we, we went over, and this guy had very carefully crafted a conversation where he tried to dismantle everything about my person, everything about my teaching, Everything about Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith, uh, the book of Revelation, and the view of pre-tribulation rapture. And, I mean, he, when it says here, you know, don't be troubled either by spirit. <clears throat> I mean, I have to say that what that guy did was definitely inspired by the supernatural. Not God. 
His power was, I would say, demonic. Because what he was trying to do was show me I was wrong. I shouldn't be teaching the book of Revelation. I probably shouldn't be in the ministry. And he he doubted my faith. I mean, this guy was doing his best to assassinate everything that I was and everything I was doing with my life. <clears throat> and I told him as much. And we left his house. You know, my whole family said, thanks for dinner, but you serve a different master than the one I do. And I'm not saying every preterist does. I'm just saying in that case, to try and sideline, you know, a pastor who's feeding, you know, a group of 30 people or so the book of Revelation for basically the first time in most of their lives, you know, to try to undermine that work. You know, see, so comes the first Sunday that I start teaching the book of Revelation, <clears throat> I have that confrontation with him. He never comes again. You know, certain things to me are very obvious when I'm dealing with them. You want to be very careful about the things you read, the things you hear, and, and you know what might uh, you know be presented to your minds and thoughts. The, the day of the Lord is still ahead of us. Let no one deceive you by any means, for the day that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. <clears throat> the term there the apostasy um is is most accurately thought of as meaning a falling away from the faith now <clears throat> there are those who insist that this has a reference to the rapture that the falling away the rapture of the church must come first and then if you read the rest of it you know, the falling away comes first. The man of sin is revealed. The son of perdition. You're talking about Antichrist at that point. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So that he sits as God in the temple showing himself that he is God. <clears throat> so clearly you're talking about the Antichrist there. Which would clearly in our minds be after the rapture of the church. So... It, it has a fit. It works in the idea of, you know, the, the church, the falling away of the church, the snatching away of the church, the rapture of the church has to come first. So, okay, you know, I can, I can understand how that works. More significantly, it really does seem to be telling us that there's going to be a lot of people that leave the faith. And this happens very frequently as the persecution rises. People profess Christianity, involved in Christianity, invest in Christianity, and you know you look at them for a long time, thinking this person is a hundred percent. And then, you know, people start killing their family members, bulldozing their homes, threatening their lives, threatening their children, killing their children, and people abandon their faith. And you can see why they would. That's a tremendous amount of pressure to be put under. And, uh, you know, the Lord is telling us that there is going to be, you know, that level of difficulty and challenge. We have had it so easy in America for so long. It's just incredible the degree uh, to which we've had, <coughs> you know, a, a catered Christian life. Uh, so much of the church around the world 
more Christians killed last year around the world just for their faith than ever before in history. You know, it's, it's astonishing. You get the opportunity <coughs> to go on to the website Voice of the Martyrs or uh, start getting their publication for yourself and see the suffering of the Christians. You know, we, we've been so incredibly sheltered here in America, and there is a great deal of difficulty coming for us here, especially now. Um, you know, we have members of our government today that are trying to put forward the bill, the idea to make law that the government needs to decide what is truth and only allow that to be heard through government-approved channels. When I say at the beginning of this, freedom of speech is gone, I mean, wake up. It's, it's over. If, if the government declares this is truth on any given subject, you go ahead and try to say something contradictory to that. Whatever it might be, you know, the, the places they're going to hit first are going to pertain mildly to politics, but in particular, LBGTQ issues are going to be right on the top of the agenda. You know, if, if someone declares themselves a, a man and declares himself to be a woman and you refer to him as him rather than her or they, you know, they're, they're finding and arresting people around the world for doing that, and here we are. We're on the verge of this, and more is to come. Declare homosexuality a sin. Watch what happens. You know, say that those who participate in homosexuality are going to go to hell, and watch what happens. It's going to be profound. You know, they always concentrate on these particular things because they're trying to push that militant homosexual agenda, but. You know, nobody has really gotten too upset when the church has said that adultery is a sin. I mean, you know, what, what is the difference? Why is it that that, because there's an agenda to silence the voice on homosexuality? You know, here's the thought, right? What, what is Lucifer's plan for humanity? Kill humanity. Wipe out the entire human race. That's, that's his only goal. That's it. Kill every human being. I mean, if you make homosexuality a prominent feature in any given culture, you're killing off the culture because the culture is not procreating. This is part of the plan. It's a very destructive thing. It's destructive to the people who participate in it and the society that endures it. I'm, I'm not saying anything about judging those people or you know, encouraging any level of animosity or hostility. I, I would say the exact opposite, that we should show a tremendous amount of love and grace and acceptance of those people because our goal needs to be to win them over and let Christ change their heart, mind, and life to save them from what their eternal destiny would be without him. The same as ours was without him. You know, to, to offer that uh, same level of love and grace with our lives. So, 
The falling away uh, is going to come first, so don't be deceived. You're going to see a, a falling away. Uh, it may specifically be referring to the rapture. Uh, I don't prescribe to that very heavily. There are those that, that wholeheartedly insist that's the only way to interpret this passage. Um, there's some timing issues with that, right? The falling away come first, and then the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So one, you got to have a temple back in Jerusalem, and then you're going to have to have worship established that he interrupts. When we look at the book of Daniel, uh, the Antichrist seems to come on the scene after the rapture and establish the seven-year agreement with the nation of Israel, break it halfway through at the three-and-a-half-year mark, which is where he demands to be worshipped as God. So the timing uh, using that falling away is a little troubling there. Verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? You know. So now I'm writing you a letter so you can review it over and over again. Maybe memorize it, you know, commit it to your thought process and understand so that you don't get stumbled again. And now you know... What is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Little language lesson, little history lesson. If you prefer the King James Version, which I do, uh, as far as its accuracy, it's just easier to teach from the new King James Version. Uh, the King James Version says, uh, now you know what leadeth in verse 6. And then in verse 7, he who now lets will do so until he is taken out of the way. Um, it actually sounds the opposite of what it means. Um, 1600s, the word let meant to interfere with, to stop to prohibit something from happening. You've probably been watching tennis at some point and the first serve comes off and it hits the net and the ball does not go over and the judge yells, let. They do not actually yell net. Everyone thinks that they're yelling net. They're yelling let, meaning the ball was prohibited by the net from traveling over. It's an old English term to inhibit or stop or halt. When you're reading the King James Version and then you come to the more modern versions, it seems like they're saying the opposite thing. That now you know what is letting or letteth that he may be revealed in his own time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains or Letteth is how it is written, will do so until he is taken out of the way. Uh, restraining is much more accurate in its modern vernacular of translation. Very simply put, you're talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is stopping the falling away. The Holy Spirit is stopping Antichrist from taking his position of power. You remove the Holy Spirit, and there goes the neighborhood. Okay? So 
where's the Holy Spirit now? Because this raises two questions, two ideologies from within Christianity. Where is the Holy Spirit right now? It's inside us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the thing that is stopping the work of uh, one world order, antichrist, uh, you know, the, the demonic powers that are in this world. Jesus said we're the salt and light of the world. Uh, we, are, we are acting as a preservative. So this ties into if the Lord comes and retrieves the church off from the earth, um, you know, imagine there's many different percentages you could work with. Some of the worst polls say that 80% of the people in America still say that they're Christians. Okay. I wildly disagree with that, but okay. Now take Jesus teaching of the 10 virgins, right? These are people waiting for Jesus to come. Only half of them are ready. When Jesus comes. So now your 80% could be reduced to 40% if you view it that way. I think it's much lower than that. So let's just bump it down one more time and say there are really only 40% that are sincere Christians. And out of them, uh, only 20% of America will be. 20% of America taken all at once off from this planet in the rapture. Now consider... 20% of those Americans are very often in very high-ranking positions in the government, in the military, in finance, in business. What is going to happen to this nation if 20? Too high? 15%. What if 15% of America? Let's go worldwide. What if 15%? Because the numbers are actually much higher than other places. China the persecution of Christianity has caused it to thrive. Okay, so they may be actually up into the realms of you know, 20, 30, 40% of their populace that are believers. So let's just drop the number for sake of discussion to 20%. 20% of the world's population gone all at once. This world is going to be thrown into chaos. Absolute pandemonium. No Two airplanes, right? Total of 3,000 people. Twin towers. Dramatic changes worldwide. Dramatic changes. Look at what's going on right now for the changes that are occurring in our nation. Just, just you know, violence all summer long. Nobody notices that, right? But one event last Wednesday, Capitol building gets stormed, which was atrocious, deplorable, should never have happened, criminal. The people that did it should be prosecuted. Here's the deal. Dramatic changes. Nowhere along the way has 20% of the world's population disappeared. You vacuum 20% of the world's population off this planet, and I think you're going to see a worldwide chaos emerge that's going to demand that the whole world find one power to solidify themselves under. Somebody's going to have to organize the whole thing. And what if a man steps forward and says, I knew this was going to happen, and here's my plan, and everybody looks at the plan and goes, that's brilliant. You're going to have the Antichrist emerge right in the middle of that. Now, take it a little further, because if you're just following what Paul is saying to the church at Thessalonica of, don't worry, guys. Jesus has not come back. You did not miss it, which is 
the summary of what he's saying. The church today has developed a doctrine from this, and it's really unfortunate. Not all of Christianity teaches this, but there are little pockets in a lot of denominations that teach that once the rapture has occurred, it's going to be impossible to get saved during the tribulation. Okay, well, anyone that teaches that, and I don't mean to be insultive, but anyone that teaches that has not read the book of Revelation. Because the Lord is very clear, in particular, in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, that there will be a huge number of people that are saved during the tribulation. In particular, Revelation chapter 7, verse 14 says, I said to him, an angel, Sir, you know, because he had been asked, Who are these people? So he, the angel, said to me, that is John, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's going to be a huge number of people who get saved during the tribulation. Now, the deal is they're going to pay for that with their lives. The Antichrist and all the people of the world are going to put them to death. But... You know, how much better than to be a worshiper of Satan and then spend an eternity separated from God. And add to that, living on earth is going to be a living hell anyway by that point. So much better to just leave and go be in the presence of the Lord. Back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Again, we're referring to the Antichrist, and Paul is continuing to clarify that the coming of Jesus Christ has not occurred yet, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. All lying wonders. Um, uh, I showed my wife a video um, last night. Uh, you know, this whole issue of, I already mentioned the government is talking about deciding what is true and what is not true and only allowing people to see those things. And a clever guy has put together a short clip. You can look it up on your own if you have time. And uh, he says, you know, as far as what's on the internet and video, you cannot believe everything you see. For instance, he says, I'm not wearing this hat, and the hat disappears off his head. <laughs> and I'm not holding this pen, and the pen disappears off his hand. And he continues to talk about how what you're seeing is not real. In fact, this is not even my face. And his face changes, and you're looking at it. Same voice continues as he's talking, and this is not my shirt. And now he's got a different shirt on, and he continues talking, and so he ends by saying, so you really can't trust everything you see, especially on the Internet. You can be continuously manipulated, and you don't. And, and it's so seamless that it's, I mean, it's not clunky at all. You know, he's just talking to you plain as can be, and his face changes while you're looking at it. You know, it becomes someone else. And he ends the whole thing by saying, and just one more time, uh, this presentation you know, this isn't even me. And his whole person changes. 
you know, for the third time. And, you know, he leaves by saying, and you'll never even really know whether I'm the actual person who put this all together. And end of the video. You know, saying, I mean, what's being presented to us all the time, you know, as truth, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the protests that just occurred, you know, maybe you saw the guy with the, the horned helmet and, you know, painted face and he's all screaming and, you know, a bunch of people are saying, oh, well, he was actually at this other protest and he's actually a member of Antifa and he was just there to create problems to make the right wing look terrible. And they show you the picture of him at the other event, but they've cropped it down like this. When you look up the whole picture on the video and go like head to foot, he's holding a sign at the other event where he's supporting, uh, you know, Trump and the right wing there. You, you can't tell, you know, the, the lying wonders. You know, I'm not trying to say anything on either side of the political issues that are going on in our nation right now. Point is. When Satan comes, he'll come with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Pe people are just going to be confused beyond imagination as to what truth is. This, this is why I tell people, you, as Christians, you cannot get involved in these conspiracy theories. It, it totally wipes out your testimony. You know, you've been preaching conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory, over here, and then suddenly one, two, three, six, eight, ten portions of that fall apart. You, you have to understand that the world views everything else you've been saying about Jesus Christ as connected to that. That's all you you just wiped out a huge portion of what you're saying about the message of Jesus Christ. Well, you know, what did John say in first? John, right? We're sharing with you the things we have seen, the things we have heard, the things we have handled with our hands. There's, there's no deception in what we're presenting to you. We're, we're presenting to you reality. You know, as here, you know, Paul is saying, don't be troubled by this. When uh, Satan comes, he's going to come in very specific ways, and he will then deceive the people so that they won't even be able to tell what's true and what's not. And with all unrighteous deception, verse 10, among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. The love of the truth. Listen, I'm not telling you to go home and try to discover the truth in any of those things. What I'm saying is the word of God is truth. Unadulterated. Without failing. You know, what did Jesus Christ say as he stood there and spoke to Pilate? He said, I am truth. That's what you need to concentrate on. That's the thing to sink your teeth into. You know, right now I'm encouraging Christians that have gotten caught up in all of this conspiracy theory stuff to just openly admit that they were wrong and abandon it. Leave it behind reattach yourself to the truth of Jesus Christ, right? The, these things that are described here, they're not going on today, but what's going on today is a foreshadowing of what's going to come. People are going to be completely confused and deceived by everything that's going on around them, even the believers. 
It's going to have to come down to you just sort of shut your eyes to all of that. You put the blinders on and you focus yourself on God's word. Because then everything that you present will be confirmed. You'll be able to stand in the truth of Jesus Christ and present that to the world and invite them into salvation. I'm, I'm really disheartened with the people that are you know, doing things that reflect this. You know, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. We're not even on, under strong delusion right now. What this is saying is the delusion is going to be so overwhelming at that point, people will not be able to tell the truth. It's going to be completely confusing for them that they should believe the lie and that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness, right? Think about that judgment that's spoken of in Romans chapter 1. And it, ha it says that the ungodly men, the unrighteous, suppress the truth in unrighteous unrighteousness. What is the, the only truth that he's talking about is God's word, right? The truth, he's not talking about the truth of stolen election. He's not talking about the truth of dominion voting machines. He's not talking about the truth of the legality of, you know, impeachment. He's talking about the truth of God's word. That, that's what we want to be presenting to the world. Uh, it's an unfortunate thing to see people being stumbled by this. I just had two pastor friends of mine send me a brand new one I hadn't heard of previously. You know, a woman who has all this research into the financial community of the entire world and how they're preparing to overthrow the entire world's economies and create a whole new system of, of economy. She got all this evidence and I'm listening to it and, you know, one of the things you always want to look for is they'll make the presentation, make the presentation, make the presentation, and they'll say, right? Right? I mean, what are you supposed to say at that point? No, I don't see it. Right? You know what I'm saying? Are you supposed to contradict them at that point? No. <laughs> They're saying it to you in such a way that you have to affirm their message. You know what I mean? Right? You know what I mean? I went back through, and you know, it's not even an hour long, and, and I counted 18 times where she makes statements that are completely unverifiable. There's, there's no way to confirm what she's saying. What's the end of the thing? She wants you to buy her book. With the money that she's telling us all is going to be worthless. Huh. So you're still in the market for our money even though you're telling us, right? In the midst of it, she makes the presentation to Christians and says, you should stop paying your taxes. Whoa, wait a minute. Our Lord himself said, render to Caesar, right? Strong delusion. Uh, you want to be very careful about getting involved in any of these things. <clears throat> but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren. Beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Again, the confirmation that believers were predestined to be so. And then the arguments begin amongst Christians about who were the predestined. What does it mean to be elect? Am I elect or non-elect? 
You want to be one of the elect? Choose Jesus Christ, accept his salvation. And then you are predestined, and then you are the elect. You have free will and free choice, regardless of what very strong teachers within Christianity insist. Both things are true. God is sovereign, and you have free will. They try to make those two things like mutually exclusive. You know what? <clears throat> if I stand in the presence of the Lord and he says to me, Will, every single choice you made along the way, I scripted that beforehand, and you were just a robot and did what I said you were supposed to do. I'll say, Thanks. <laughs> Who cares? Who cares on this side of the perspective? Why would I want to sit around and drive myself mad trying to figure out the sovereignty of an omnipotent God? He says he's sovereign, but he also said we have choices to make. So I choose to accept his sovereignty. You know, if you have, then you are one of these. Oh, well, sanctification, you know, that means I'm progressively moving towards being saved. No, it doesn't. It means you have already been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've talked about it many times in these Bible studies. Yeah, there is a maturing process and a cleansing process that we go through, but our cleansing ourselves isn't what gives us salvation. Jesus Christ cleansed us from our sin with his blood by the Spirit and believing in the truth so that we would obtain salvation, to which he called you by our gospel, not somebody else's gospel, not the gospel preached by the Mormons. Listen, don't pay attention to Glenn Beck. He lies all the time. That guy is not a Christian. He insists that he is. He's a Mormon through and through. He preaches, oh, no, Mormons believe in the same salvation as Christianity. Crying, you know, more than four years ago, crying about the fact that Christians say he's not a born-again Christian. I can't believe my brothers. You're not my brother. You, you want to reject Mormonism? You want to publicly stand up and say, I've been born again. I am now a Christian. I am no longer a Mormon. I reject the teachings of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. Well, then welcome to the family. But these people that want to insist they have you know, their own brand of the gospel? No, you don't. There's only one gospel. Paul specifically said that if someone brings you another gospel, even if it was presented by an angel, right, that they're eternally condemned. There's only one gospel, and it is what Paul has preached here. You know, he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle, not the traditions of Christianity. you got to understand that. There are many traditions the church has had down through time that were realized to be false, that were abandoned. I mentioned Mormonism. Briefly, Christianity embraced the concept of being baptized for people who had already died because Paul mentions it. The problem is he's talking about the pagan practices of an unbelieving world, how they get baptized for the dead. 
He's not, he's not referencing the fact that Christians do it and should do it. But because of the misunderstanding, briefly it comes into Christianity. Christianity realizes the, the, uh, the reality of it and rejects it. Right? There are many false traditions in the Roman Catholic institution that should be rejected and done away with. Okay? What he's talking about is, you know, the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle, things that were confirmed especially by God's word. You know, our word, the things they taught, the apostles' doctrine, our epistle, the things they wrote, what they taught with their mouth, they later wrote and sent to the churches. You want to confirm a tradition of the church? Line it up with the written word of God, and then you'll know whether it should be in the church or not. You know? Many such things. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Quite a uh, statement on Paul's part as far as what his desire is for the church at Thessalonica. I would be blessed if all of these things were happening in my life and in the lives of everyone here at this fellowship. As he continues here, <clears throat> excuse me, in chapter 3, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men and not for not all have faith. So some of this is a reference to things going on inside the church also. He's certainly talking about the unbelievers and unreasonable men from outside the church, but also inside the church. And he's going to address some of that specifically. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command. And that's not Paul just being super nice. He's experienced this church's conduct and the fact that even when they go off track a little bit, when they're corrected by their teachers and when they receive letters from their teachers, they make adjustments and they follow the things that they're told to do. <clears throat> so his expression of confidence in them is a real thing. You know, there, there are different groups and different teachers and uh, different denominations within Christianity. Some of them you can look at that and say, wow, you know, that body of Christians over there, you know, is very diligent to be obedient to the leading of the Lord. You can look on at others and think that entire organization has chosen its own path and is going its own direction, not following the leading of the Lord. And it's kind of gracious of the Lord that like-minded people cluster together. <laughs> because then you can go, oh, not so much in this whole fellowship. And you go to the next one, like, yes, this is a place I can hang out. Uh, th that, uh, you know, that reaffirming of itself. But we uh, command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before I move through this section, and extends all the way down to 15. I want you to notice, many times Paul will say, I, not the Lord, 
want to say such and such to you. And so you can understand, okay, this is Paul lending us his experiential opinion. It's weighty. He's, he's been taught by Jesus Christ himself. He knows things. But he's telling you, I've kind of put this together in my own thinking. Other times he'll just outright say, as he does right here, we command you. So this isn't optional. We command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this isn't even like I, Paul, command you. This is we command you under the authority of Jesus Christ. So everything that follows is going to be extremely weighty, right? That you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according true through uh, according to the tradition which he received from us. Now I, I have to be clear. He speaks of some very specific things in the verses that are following, but generally speaking, that is a truth. If you can recognize that someone is looking straight at the word of God and the teachings of the apostles and going, nah, I'm not really into that. <laughs> you want to move away from them. You do not want to associate and affiliate yourself with them. There's going to be problems in their life, and it's probably going to affect you to whatever degree you're fastened to them. So if you can recognize this, you want to put some distance. You know, maybe you still want to be around them. He gives specific instructions at the end of this uh, section, but take caution. Again, commandment, authority of Jesus Christ. Someone walks disorderly, you know, move away from them. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you. And then more specifically, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. This got so bad in the church that they actually wrote out a commandment for the church, which became known as uh, the Didache, which is, uh, you know, did, act, combined as a compound word, meaning uh, this is how ministers should act when they're amongst you. One of the things uh, that they, one of the things, a couple of the things that they said within that was that if someone, a minister, an evangelist, a preacher, a prophet came and was amongst your church, um, he could call for a feast, but that feast needed to be for others not himself. It was almost described as he shouldn't even participate in it. Um, couldn't demand payment. Oh, I'd love to come uh, preach at your church. Uh, my standard fee is X number of dollars. <laughs> you know, no. You know, that, that, that did not fly in the day. I think that that's a wise thing today. I, I like ministers and musicians and worship leaders that uh, if they tell you what they need to receive as far as they're coming and ministering, they'll tell you, you know, our costs to travel there, airfare, gas, food, whatever would be X number of dollars. That's what we're looking for. You know, j just so, but, you know, it, it's appalling to me 
when some of the most renowned Christian artists of our day do not come and perform anywhere without a quarter million dollars. $250,000 is the standard fee. If they're in the top 40 charts of Christianity, not even world, quarter million dollars. Some of the least expensive are $125,000. Wow. Remarkable. I mean, what's your overhead that you've got to have that much money? There's some serious questions within that. So, you know, this statement of we came and we worked amongst you, you know, I'll never forget. Uh, years ago, I was at a church. I had been asked to speak there, and uh, I I was helping out. Knew the pastor really well, and uh, you know, as we were getting started, I noticed that uh, you know the entryway needed to be swept, and you know, next thing I thought, well, that trash could be emptied, and I'm just going around empty stuff, and. Uh, you know, one of the guys comes in a little later and he's like, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just taking this trash out. That's not how you do it. And he starts telling me this and he tells me where the trash bags are and he's walking me out the dumpster and he's, you know, telling me this and that should be done and that and this. And I'm like, okay, man, I'm on it. You know, that's what I was doing anyway. And uh, imagine how polite he was to me after I got done speaking. You know, and I tried to explain to him, look, guy, I'm, you know, you shouldn't be embarrassed. Servants of Jesus Christ should be servants. You know, if I'm doing it wrong and you know how it should be done and you're correcting me and telling me, I'm not embarrassed by that. Show me where things go. Let's do it. Let's do it right. And, and yet so many people that are within Christianity, you know, can't bring themselves to engage in any way. And, and Paul is saying, look, man, when we showed up amongst you, you noticed that we didn't say, uh, you know, our standard fee or our weekly paycheck or our retirement plan needs to be. He just went to work. He wasn't a burden to anyone, not because we did not have authority. Right. I could have asked for a paycheck. Jesus Christ gave me that permission and said, you don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. And I, did, I had authority to do that but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. If we were servants, definitely you should be servants. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this. We told you these things when we were amongst you. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. If he will not work. Anyone that cannot work, the church was told you're supposed to take care of them. They're sick, lame, halt, injured. For whatever reason, if they cannot work, it's the church's responsibility to take care of that person. If they refuse to work, the church should not be lending them anything. People call up all the time to this church and want money. First thing I say is, uh, well, there's a form we need you to fill out. That No exaggeration at all. That knocks 80% of the people right off. They, they won't come get the form. They won't have me mail it to them. I offer to deliver it to them. They're all set. Thank you very much. There's been a handful of times that as soon as I said, we've been here for 19 years. So a handful of times I've said, well, we have a form. We ask people to fill out. Click. They hang right up. Done. They're looking for free money. In the uh, form they need to fill out, it asks them if they would be willing to work. 
work around the church, do things. I mean, you're asking for free money. Are you unable to work? Do you have a job? What's going on? We, we want to know. We don't just take God's resources and throw them away. If you will not work, neither should you eat. Verse 11, for we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. They don't work, but it sounds like the church is taking care of them, and they just collect information and then share it with everybody else. They're, they're gossips. You know, Again, this is another Facebook verse right here. <laughs> One more condemnation of social media. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort, okay, here's the commandment, with the instruction, with the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Stop being a gossip. Get a job. Pay your bills. Buy your own groceries. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. That is quite a statement. It is difficult to continue on when the job is wearisome and to pick it up one more time and do it again. The Lord is calling us to do that as we watch more and more people falling away and excusing themselves and not being involved. Brothers and sisters, be strong and continue on. Be about the work of the Lord. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person. Listen, you guys, that statement is like put a mark upon them. Like you would, you know, write a post-it note and then stick it on the thing that says this is, you know, whatever. That's what he's saying. Note the person. That means others are going to know these things. The church needs to make note, right? When it becomes obvious that brother so-and-so doesn't get a job and he just goes around asking to borrow money and using up the body of Christ, then the church needs to make note of that for the body of Christ. You understand why... The church is in so much trouble today when it doesn't do a lot of these things. Commandments, right? Withdraw from this person. And the church does the exact opposite. Oh, you know, I just want to get more involved with them and like encourage. No, you should pull away. If your friendship is valuable to them, when you pull your friendship away from them, maybe they're going to automatically say, what's wrong? And then the next person you know, gets involved with them and they're behaving this way and they withdraw from them and the next person withdraws from them. At some point they're going to, you know, realize, hey, people pull away from me. Why? Why do people pull away from me? Because you're disobeying the word of God. You claim to be a Christian, but you're disobeying the word of God. Note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. I don't want to embarrass them. That's not what Paul said. And unfortunately, Paul said it with a command and the authority of Jesus Christ attached. So I am obligated to do these things. Yet, notice this, look at the grace that's contained right here. 
Do not count him as an enemy. Don't treat him like some wicked, evil person, but admonish him as a brother. You know, go and say, look, man, I noticed that you just aren't getting a job and you're just mooching off on other people and it's wrong. And as a brother, this is not how we act. So you need to change your behavior and then stop hanging out with them so that they'll realize it's offensive and they need to make a change. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen. You know, the salutation of Paul with my own hand which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. And uh, there are other places where Paul signs and he says, see what big letters I use. And that's the thought that uh, you know, his eyesight was so bad that he would sign his name very large so he himself could see it. And that kind of is incorporated in here with the idea of, you know, you know, it's a Pauline letter when the signature on the thing is like six times bigger than the rest of the letter, his, his uh, signature. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And that's, you know, what a gracious way to end this thing, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be with us all. Can't think of anything we need more in this culture, in this day and age, to minister to the world that is around us. And the grace of our Lord being with us and upon us all. Amen. So there's Second Thessalonians. A little bit long, but we'll pray and pick up next week. Father, I thank you for your love, for your grace, for the writings of Paul. And I ask that you would help us to review this again and dwell upon it, meditate upon what Paul has said here and encouraged and commanded us to do, that we would be more effective in our walk with you and in our ministry. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.